This is obviously a large text. It hangs together, I think, really coherently, and our minds will be able to follow it as we walk through. But um, we need God's help this morning, both for me as I speak the word, both and for you as you receive it. So let's pray earnestly that God would bless this time. Lord, we do come to you as your people. We are so thankful to be your people, the sheep of your pasture, the people in the palm of your hand. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we want to proclaim your excellencies. And Lord, we pray that you would show us your excellencies. Show us the glory of your justice and your mercy as we open your word this morning. God, would you touch our hearts in such a way that you would expose things about us that need to be exposed in order for us to find healing and a way forward. And Lord, that you would apply the healing balm of your gospel, that it would give us hope and that it would energize us to go to you, the lover of our souls, to return to you again and again as our first love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began our sermon series on the book of Hosea, and I realize some of you might be coming for the first time, and instead of you just jumping in cold, I want to just give a little help, and it will be good review for all of us. At the beginning of the book of Hosea, this story about God's redeeming love ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God has his prophet Hosea do something that is a little crazy. He has him do something that's going to make a very potent point, something that would be inescapable in terms of how God is seeing the situation in Israel at the time. He has Hosea marry a woman whose character looks a lot like the character of the Israelites of that day. To marry a woman who is unfaithful and wayward, a woman who is a woman of whoredom in order to make the broader point. And what's that broader point that Hosea's marriage is meant to represent? It's meant to show God's relationship with Israel. God is this faithful husband to Israel, and Israel is this unfaithful bride that is running around on her husband and trampling over his heart, as it were. So that's the picture of Hosea's marriage, and he is preaching, in one sense, as a man who feels something of the pain of God. Do you remember? He's feeling the very thing that he is preaching on behalf of God to the people as his wife runs around. And so Hosea's marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. But it's not just the marriage that Hosea has that's meant to illustrate an important lesson. It's also the sad names he gives to his children, right? So you have Jezreel, uh, Lo Ruhama. And lo ami, meaning um, not my people, or no mercy and not my people. And so you put it together and these names are meant to say, because of your unfaithfulness to me, your rampant unfaithfulness toward me, you can expect to be forsaken by me, abandoned by me, to experience no mercy from me. In fact, the only expectation you should have is judgment. And then we saw this marvelous shift at verse 10, going through the end of the chapter, where there's this shift where God is going to save his people by raising up one leader and giving his people a heart to follow this one leader, which is just a miracle, because judging by where they were at, you just it only would take a miracle for them to actually want to follow this leader. It actually says that they appointed for themselves one head, this leader that would lead them, out of their sin, through the wilderness of this life, and ultimately into the ultimate promised land to come, that place called heaven. Now, this, when, when the people come to follow this leader and come to know this leader and trust this leader, they are called children of the living God. They're given a new name and a new identity. They, are part, they find themselves as part of this great multitude of believers the saints that are going, marching in, following their leader all the way home, encouraging one another on the way of the grace that they have shown, even though they did not deserve it, given all of their unfaithfulness. That, in a nutshell, is what last week's message was all about from Hosea chapter 1. And I reiterate it because that picture, especially of Hosea's marriage, portraying 
God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness is meant to be a picture we're meant to have in our minds throughout the entire book of Hosea. And this book is going to retell in many different ways this same story of, God, of God's redeeming love in Christ. So I said last week, my hope is that through hearing this story retold and recast over and over again, we would be able to sing, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. So now we enter into chapter 2, um, starting in verse 2, going all the way through the end of chapter 2. And what we're going to see here is three responses from God. Three responses to Israel's unfaithfulness. So we're going to think a little bit about Israel's unfaithfulness, see God's response. Think a little bit more about Israel's unfaithfulness, see God's response. And then finally, we're building up to that third response. And what you're going to see is those responses get get increasingly amazing as they go. And so, without further ado, let's dive into chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Now, just get your bearings real quick here. So, mother, this is just symbolic language for the nation of Israel. Okay? And so the children of Israel, anybody that has their spiritual senses or bearings, anyone that's partially awake to the reality of who God is and is remembering their God, it's saying, cry out, cry out, call the nation back. Call them back to their God. Tell her of her waywardness. Tell her to leave her whorings and come back to God. Come home, as it were. So plead with her that she would put away her whorings from her face, her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. In other words, warn her. Call her back to repentance and back to God so that God's judgment doesn't have to come on her. Notice all that language of, of stripping her naked, stripping her away. This is very vivid language. You're going to go from this fruitful country to be in this parched land. This is language that the Bible uses to describe exile. Being kicked out of God's land. Just like the land is being stripped and you're being stripped out of the land. He's saying, this is what's going to happen if you do not turn. If you do not repent. So call her back. Plead with her. And it continues. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them and has acted shamefully. For she has said, and this gets at the nature of how she has acted shamefully, she has said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I want you to latch on to that phrase, the middle of verse 5, when it says, and she said, I will go after my lovers. I will go after my lovers. This picture here of Israel's spiritual condition is is akin to spiritual adultery. Okay, And she is going after lovers. She's running around. She's being unfaithful to God. In Israel, in their day, this looked like worshiping false gods. In part, like the the um, the false god named Baal that shows up. You heard it read a few moments ago. His name shows up over and over again. They were treating Baal, for example, like that was her husband. Like that was the one that they should give their loyalty and love and affections to. Right? So they're committing adultery. They're putting, or they're committing adultery, they're committing idolatry by putting these false gods before the true God. And really any sin is idolatry because we're choosing that above God. And remember a helpful definition of idolatry. The biggest problem in Hosea's day in the nation of Israel that accounted for their spiritual unfaithfulness and the biggest problem of our day. You could boil down the definition to anything equal to or above God. Anything we place equal to or above God is an idol that we are worshiping. It is a lover. It is a lover that we are running to. It's the things that we run to and believing that they're going to be the things that give us the satisfaction. Those are going to be the things that meet my greatest needs. 
Those are the things that are going to make, they're going to be most pleasurable to me. Now, idolatry takes a lot of different forms, doesn't it? Idolatry takes a lot of different forms and it's kind of like paths. Think about this. When you're walking through the woods, and maybe you own woods, some of you own a lot of property, well, you have woods and you have paths through these woods. And some of these paths are really well trod, right? They're well defined and those are the paths that you take. Nine out of times, maybe 49 out of 50 times you take those paths. Well, here, we're being described, like, we're, what's being described here is these paths that hearts, human hearts, want to go down. The things that we love, the things that we don't, that don't please God because we're putting them equal to or above God. And so one of the questions I want to ask you is, what, what paths would define you? Like, what are your lovers? What are the things that you run, tend to run after? Like, the further you walk down that path, the further you're getting from God, if you're being honest. What are your paths? It can take a lot of different forms. Sometimes there's things that are explicitly sinful. Sometimes it's things that are good that have become ultimate in our lives. So it could be lots of different things. Lots and lots of different things. For example, um, take pornography, for example. That is something the heart could just want to run down. That's a lover trying to find satisfaction, promising lots of things, but leaving you empty. That is one path that one can run down. I think of things even that are good. Think about things like food. Good gift from God, right? But what about when we make it ultimate? The thing that, the thing that we have to have more than anything else, the thing that we, in, we indulge ourselves and become gluttonous, that can be a path. Is that your path that you run down? Maybe it's the way that you spend your money or the way you spend God's money. That could be a path that your heart just tends to run run down because it's where you're going to find satisfaction in what you're buying. What is, sometimes I even think something as good as family can be such an idol. Something that is such, it is a profound gift, one of the sweetest gifts on this side of heaven. But we can make it all about our family, protecting our family. That everything becomes about the family. And God is not ultimate. God is hardly worshipped. But it becomes ultimate. What are these paths that we're running down? What are these things we're trying to find our satisfaction? What are these things that we think are going to deliver and meet our deepest needs? These are these well-worn paths in our hearts. Where are you inclined? Where are you inclined to go? See, Israel is saying, you know, I will go after my lovers. We don't usually verbalize that, but our hearts do it. And it wasn't just a problem in Israel. It's a problem in our day. What are the paths that are well-trod in your life, the things that you want to go to? And think about this. What is God's response to this? this? What's God's response to his spiritual bride, as it were, Israel, running after their lovers, treading this path all the time? What's he going to do? How is he going to respond to that? Look at verse 6. Therefore, since Israel's doing this, since they're running after their lovers, I will hedge her up, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her. Listen to that language. God is saying, since she's doing this, I am going to build a wall, like across those paths. I'm going to obstruct the way. In other words, the first response of God is to block opportunities for our sin. (laughs) He's going to put a roadblock up. And why would he do that? So that when we run into it, we're going to have a headache after a while. Or I like the other imagery, a hedge. Imagine this like this thorny, thick, thorny hedge. And you're so used to going on these paths. You know, your heart just wants to go there. You crave it. You long for it. It's the thing you're longing for more than anything else, way more than God. And your heart wants to go there. And you're just like, whatever it takes. And you start digging through that thorny hedge. And you're getting bloodied and scratched up. And you bounce back. And you're like, oh, I'm going in again. And you just keep going. And then you're stepping back. And you're going again. This goes on and on. And then pretty soon you're sitting back. You have a throbbing headache. 
you're cut up, you're scratched up, and you're sitting there. And you're going, what am I doing? What am I doing? In fact, I think why God does that is he wants us to come to that kind of realization. Like, remember that story, the prodigal son? Right? The son has a terrible attitude. He's got a super generous father who's so loving to him and he demands an early inheritance, right? And he takes it and he squanders it. He goes to a distant country and he squanders it with loose living, drinking parties, women, anything he could get his hands on. He squandered it and he ends up losing it all. And he's all alone. And he's so desperate that he hires himself out to a pig farmer and he's out in the fields and he's feeding the pigs. And you imagine him handing these pods to the pigs and holding one back for himself and going, for some reason this looks really good. And then all of a sudden, in his misery, he looks at that pig farmer and goes, what am I doing? What am I doing? He starts coming to his senses and going, even, I mean, I don't deserve to be my father's son anymore after what I pull, but, I mean, even my father's servants have bread and water and everything that they need. I mean, my father's so generous, at least he would let me come back as a servant. And he throws it down and he starts heading for home. I think that's what's meant to happen here. Look with me at the verse. After he builds the wall and he sets up these thorns, it says, she cannot get to her lovers. And it says, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. They shall say, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me than now. God will bring, he'll set up walls and hedges in order to bring us to a place of misery so that we would return to our first husband. And it makes me think of Jesus' words in uh, Revelation chapter 2, I believe, uh, verses 4 and 5. And he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. And really, this words could apply to, to any church or any Christian that the shoe fits on, right? And he's saying, you have forgotten your first love. You know a lot of stuff, but you have forgotten your first love. Return. Return. Come home. Come home. This is what's being said right here. God's first response to Israel's waywardness and our waywardness, you can see in this text, to set up walls and hedges, allow us to feel some misery in order that we would recognize God for who he is and that we would come home. Then look at verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. Notice that? Look back with me at verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Do you see that? What's the problem there? She's giving all the credit that is owed to God, her true lover, her ultimate husband, and giving it to who? Her lovers. Her idols. All the things that she is deceived into thinking are going to truly satisfy her. I mean, it's a, it's a shameful thing, isn't it? I mean, all of us in one sense really hate, if we're honest, like sometimes when we, like we've done something really good and we don't get the credit for it, it's kind of like, eh, you know, like kind of grinds on us a little bit, you know, and it's a good mark of humility when we can let something like that pass, right? Well, ultimately, God is the one who gives every good and perfect gift, right? It says in James, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. I mean, just sometimes stop and think about it. Just like, you know, one of us needs a surgery and we go to a hospital and we go like, oh, the doctor's awesome. Like, well, praise God for doctors. Praise, I praise God that they're highly skilled, you know. But ultimately, who gives people the minds to think through these things and medications and remedies, you know, architecture, you know. I mean, there's so many things in life that we just enjoy. But ultimately, these good gifts come from God. And there is something at the very essence of our sin is a failure to recognize who our gifts come from. And sometimes we give ourselves more credit than anything. It's my work ethic. It's my this. It's my And God's saying, I gave these things to you. And you're ascribing them to yourself or you're giving the credit to some of your other lovers, the, the ones you really love. 
Now, that's bad enough that our hearts can be like that, to refuse to give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. But there is something worse than that. And honestly, there's a line in here that that really is heartbreaking in so many ways. Because it doesn't stop by saying she did not know. She's living in this delusion and giving credit to her lover. She didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which she used for Baal. That's so heartbreaking. Ponder that with me. I mean, you imagine, okay? Imagine a husband who just adores his wife. He adores his wife. He loves to lavish good things on his bride. He delights in her. And so he wants her to have everything she wants and even could meet. She just, he wants to bless his wife. And they're kind of centrally located and he's planning a wonderful evening with his wife. And so he's going out all over the place and he's getting all these ingredients for this amazing, magnificent meal that he's going to put together. And so he's buying the best of ingredients, something, I mean, the stuff that's going to give a kick in the meal, every little spice, everything. He's giving attention to every single detail. He's even a guy buying candles, right? He's buying candles. He's trying to think about the ambiance of the room. And this evening, he wants it to be so sweet, so meaningful. And every time he makes a stop and picks up an ingredient, he brings it home because it's just centrally located house. Honey, check it out. And he brings it and he, and he keeps doing this all day. He's running all over the place. And he goes for his last run and he comes home, swings the door open, honey, I'm home. And he hears no response. And everything he's brought is gone. And then he finds out later that she's at her boyfriend's house making a magnificent meal. In one sense, giving thanks to him for how good he's been to her and all that he's given That's sick, isn't it? It's really sick when we use the things that God gives us to serve our lovers and to serve our idols, to use the minds that God's given us, the hands that God's given us, to use the feet that God's given us to travel places that we should not go, to run out on God at night. This is heartbreaking, this language here. And it's not just applied to Israel, it's applied to us when we run from God and we use things God's given us in order to serve the ones we really love. So how is God going to respond to that kind of treatment? His response is going to be to strip everything away from her. Everything that she's able to lean on and keep pretending. So, First of all, he's going to strip away the, those very good gifts that she's so used to, right? Because she's got these good gifts and she can kind of play the part like, yeah, I'm, I'm at home. Yeah, not really. Like you're kind of there, but you're just looking for every opportunity to run out, right? So he says, in verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its season and my wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. That's really in important like these things were meant to be a provision for her. she would know that she's mine you know she's provided for she's protected and but instead of being under my covering she's running elsewhere and she's acting like she's mine but she's not she she's wanting to give the sense maybe to the community around her that she's she belongs to me she's my wife but really she's running all around so i'm going to strip away everything so that what's what i really gave her that she's giving credit to her lovers for when it's all gone Yeah, let's see how good to our lovers are then, right? Just like the prodigal son, how good are your friends when everything's stripped away? When everything's gone? You're going to have a headache. You're going to be scratched up, sitting there, bloodied, and you're going to be miserable and alone. And you're going to have to see yourself for who you really are. And all your, notice that word, lewdness. This is a humiliating thing. God is actually stripping these things. He's saying, I want to strip these things away so that you see yourself for who you are. But not just stripping away these material things. He's going to strip away the religious facade and veneer. Because what's she doing? What is Israel doing? Well, it's not just that she goes to worship at the temple of Baal. She also goes to Yahweh's temple. Right? She'll go to Yahweh. She'll go to church. She'll go to church, she'll give her offerings, she'll go through the motions. 
Why? So that she can still appear like she loves and worships her true God and husband, but really, where's her heart at? It's in a different place, and it's running after her lovers. God understands this. He sees. He knows. And so he's saying, I'm not just going to strip away those props, those things that seem to be enabling you to keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to strip away even the, the religious veneer of your life so that you'll quit saying that you worship me when you don't. Keep, quit saying that you love me when you really don't. It says here, notice that religious language there in verse 11. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. You see, what's going to happen here is, this is all language really describing the exile that's going to come. Right? Call out to her, because this is where it's, she's going to be stripped bare. She's going to get everything stripped from her in order to make a point so she sees herself for what she really is and she'll, and also so the nations see her for what she really is. We can stop the pretending and quit bringing reproach upon my name that she bears. This is very serious. He's going to strip it all away. And I will punish her for her feast days of her bales, verse 13, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after other lovers. And here you go. Capstone of the section. And forgot me, declares the Lord. This is what it comes down to, right? This is what Israel did. At the end of the day, she forgot God. To run after the one is to forget the other. You cannot serve two masters, right? You can't live a life of idolatry and have pure worship before God. God wants to make this so clear to those in Hosea's day, and he wants to make it so clear in our day. They forgot God. And we, when we sin and run those paths, we are functionally forgetting God. Forgetting his goodness. Forgetting who he is. Have you come to see that in your own heart? When you're running down those paths? It's a hard realization to come to. But to actually go, I've been like a beast towards you. Like I've been running around. It's a painful thing to come to, but a needed realization to come. And that's why God, in his responses, is calling out Israel's sin. Yes, he's putting up blocks and barriers, but notice, that's, at the end of the day, not going to be enough, right? Because they're just going to keep banging their head and just keep wanting to go there. Because what? What hasn't changed? The heart. Those cravings are still there. Set up as many barriers. God knows this. But it does make people stop and think. And this is part of how God, what God uses to open that door of hope. We saw that door cracked open when, in verse 7, when it says, Then she will say, after she gets cut up and miserable and has a headache from running after her lover, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. That door is kind of cracked open early on that door is going to get kicked off its hinges right here as we think about this third response. Now, you read through this and you go, you know, logically, the first two responses make a lot of sense. Israel is really wayward and continually going after lovers, so that God would build the wall. Kind of makes sense, right? I mean, logically. I'm not talking about any political connotations here, okay? God would build the wall. He would hedge it up. And it even makes sense to me, a lot of sense, that God would strip these things away. You know, when they're being used, it's almost like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, incentivize this kind of behavior, so strip them away. It makes sense. There's some logical sense to these things. But I'll tell you what does not make a lot of sense to me logically, is this next response. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, to be totally honest. I read this, meditate on this, and I just go, it's, this doesn't make sense. This is not logical. Like the only thing to describe his third response here is this is the logic of heaven. So how is God going to respond to this kind of waywardness, this kind of running around, having his heart trampled on over and over and over again by sinners, by you and by me? Verse 14. 
Therefore, I'm going to respond in this way. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Like, I don't know. If I'm trying to play God in this situation, like, well, I got a few other words I want to say. But I bring her into the wilderness and I speak tenderly. Notice that word wilderness, right? I'm going to bring her to this place where she's stripped of everything else that she could rely upon. Everything else that she's going to go to for rescue, for pleasure, for hope, for satisfaction. I'm going to bring her to a place where she realizes in a very real way that these things cannot satisfy. These things cannot fill the heart. These things will not deliver. I'm going to bring her to that place where she's broken. She's got a headache. She's kind of miserable. In other words, I'm going to bring her to a place of repentance. This book is massive on this. Where God is calling his people to repent, to purity of heart, to a loyalty. He wants our hearts. He wants our affections for himself. And so sometimes he brings us to this place where we're broken so that he can speak tenderly to us. And part of that brokenness is showing us who we are in all of our lewdness. It's painful to see. It's painful to come to that realization. It's that incision by a skilled surgeon that's going to lead to the healing. He's going to speak tenderly to her. He's going to call her. He's going to woo her. He's going to win her heart, her affections, her loyalty. And he's going to do that in a very breathtaking, illogical to us, but makes a lot of sense in the logic of heaven kind of way. Verse 5. And this is where the title of the sermon comes from, A Door of Hope. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to bring her to this place of brokenness and then I'm going to restore her fortunes. It's, all of a sudden it's going to be safe again to give her good gifts, to give her things that she's not going to use on her lovers. And it says, I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. This line is incredible. Valley of Achor. It's referring to the valley where an act of incredible judgment took place. It's meant to make our minds, and it would have made the minds of the Israelites, that, to run back to Joshua chapter 7. The story where the Israelites are coming into the land, the promised land, and they are told in very direct terms as they're taking cities to this specific city to, to devote it to complete destruction. In other words, don't, don't take, don't hoard things for yourselves. Don't try to take of the bounty, like devote it to complete destruction. To do otherwise would be to break faith with God, to show that you don't trust God, to show that you love these things more than you love God. And Israel's rolling. They're getting victory. And all of a sudden, they go up, and there's this little city, I think it's called Ai, or Ai, however you want to pronounce it, and they go up to it, and, and Joshua's like, this is so small. Like, this is the light work. Let's send 3,000 guys, just knock this thing out, and let's get back in time for dinner. Well, they come back, screaming their heads off. 36 of them are, like, wiped out, and Joshua knows what this means. Something's off. God's not, God is doing something here. He's sending a message and he tears his robe. Long story short, all of Israel is under this judgment, but for one person's sin. And God, through the casting lots, narrows it down all the way, unbelievably, to one man, Achan. There was an Achan in the camp who, when they were supposed to devote these things to complete destruction, broke faith with God. Oh, he saw some gold. His heart ran after it. He found some things that he thought would be really nice. You know, once they settle in, this would put him up pretty well. And so, what does he do? He gathers it for himself sneakily in the darkness. And he digs a hole and under his tent it goes into this hole, put the mat over it. I'm going to give the impression that I'm worshiping God, but I'm going to have this stuff under my tent. 
I've broken faith with God, but I'm going to give the impression that I haven't. God sees. Calls out Achan. The, the stuff he's been hiding is unearthed. He is seen in all of his lewdness. And in this moment, we're, we're meant to just picture in the Valley of Achor, this act of judgment where Achan, his entire family, is burned and stoned. I mean, this is intense. Now, we get that picture, and we're meant to go, huh, in what ways am I like Achan? In what ways have I broken faith with God? In what ways have I let my heart go, and am I hiding stuff under my tent? And we're meant to go, I am like Achan. In more ways than I care to admit, and I would deserve the same thing that Achan had. And what this text is doing, though, is it's bringing the memory of an intense moment of judgment in the Valley of Achor, and it's saying, okay, take that picture now and bring it to another place where judgment poured out. Can you think of another one that was more intense than that? Bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, unearth that stuff under your tent. Grab all of it. Bring it with you and set it at the foot of the cross. I want you to see that. And I want you to look at that man hanging up on that cross right there. He's not like Achan, and he's not like you, and he's not like me. And then the man on the cross is perfect. He has never once broken faith with God. Never once. Not in his mind, not in his heart, not in his actions. And there he hangs, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is experiencing the judgment of God. The stones are flying, the fire's coming. And all of that moment, all that moment, he is standing in your place and you're sitting there at the base of that cross and you're going, that should have been me. That should have been me. And at that moment, as you're looking there, coming to the recognition of your lewdness and what your sin deserves, the almighty wrath of a righteous and rightfully jealous lover in heaven who's made us for himself. And a door opens. A door opens at the moment of greatest judgment. A door of hope. And there's an announcement made, all who will trust in this one who's not like you and will trust in what he did, trust in the judgment he absorbed on your behalf, if you will trust in him, and you will walk through that, leave your life of sin at the cross and walk through that door, you will have, the moment you walk through it, eternal life. That's going to start then and it's going to well up and spill out into eternity when Jesus Christ comes back again. And when you walk through that door, you need to know that you're following the one on that cross because that one on the cross didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the dead and now he's calling people to himself to walk through that door of hope that he opened by his own blood. I love how other John Weiss opened us this morning reminding us like, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the basis of a new covenant that will not be broken. And it's right there. The Valley of Achor, place of greatest judgment, is made to be a door of hope. So walk through that door if you have not already. Because there is no other place to find hope. And if you walk through that door, you get some sweet instruction in the rest of this passage about what does it look like to be one who's walked through that door? What does it look like to be a recipient of this new covenant and its blessings? What does it look like to have a heart? A heart that will answer back to God and follow him. Notice this. I'm saying walk through the door and follow the one that was on the cross. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. In other words, just echoing back to Israel being brought out of Egypt, right? into the wilderness where they, with this youthful purity, like 
followed God. That pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, they walked with him. Where he went, they went. Right? It's like, you're going to follow him like that, only better. (laughs) You're going to follow him with this renewed purity of soul. And I love this. There's this phrase that's going to show up multiple times. In that day. In that day. In that day. It's pointing forward to another day. I mean, did you pay attention to our fighter verse this morning? I hope you've been meditating on it. And I'm going to read back from Jeremiah chapter 32. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Right Before, when we were breakers of the covenant, he does good for us and what do we do with it? Right, We turn it to serve our lovers, right? But now, in the new covenant, which comes with it, a transformed heart, a heart that's increasingly being transformed, we're actually going to use the things that God's given us to turn back and honor our divine husband. This is stunning. And notice I used the, I wanted to point us to that verse because the word covenant's used in verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant. We're talking about this new covenant. In that day, in that day, brothers and sisters, it was anticipating a day that we're living in. They were waiting for it to come. And we are recipients of this new covenant. We are enjoying its blessings ever since the Valley of Achor became a door of hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever since we walked through that door, we are recipients of the new covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ made this new covenant with us. He put his spirit within our hearts. And what happens here is really amazing. We're going to respond to him. We're going to follow him according to the last part of verse 15. But let's walk through some of these covenant just blessings and some of the things that come with being recipients of the new covenant, having transformed hearts. For example, verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Interesting, ironically, the word Baal means husband. And so they've been getting this mixed up for a long time, right? They've been looking at Baal like, this is my husband. Like, this is my lover. And God's saying, no, after I transform your heart, you're going to actually see who your true lover is. And you're going to want to stay home. You're going to want to be faithful to him because you're going to recognize him for who he is. So, then it goes on in verse 17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. This is incredible. To remove it from their mouth, it's why they're not going to talk about the Baal anymore. Why? Well, it's the overflow of the heart that mouth speaks. They're not going to be busy talking about Baal because their heart's been changed. Right? And this is amazing. What, what was Israel's state before? Remember the end of verse 13? They forgot me. It's a good summary of where Israel was at spiritually. But now that they've walked through this door of hope and they've had their hearts touched by the grace of God and they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he's put the fear of God in their hearts that they would not turn away from him. Now that this new covenant blessing has happened, this change has happened in the heart, this is part of sanctification. This is part of how we grow and become more like Jesus. Have you noticed that in your life? If you're a Christian, I believe you have at some level. And it's all different levels of maturity and growth and we're all at different stages. But this will be true for you if you're a Christian. You know those old paths that you were those really well-worn paths? Not, God won't even have to set a wall up anymore. You know why? Because you're going to put it up. <laughs> like, you're going to have a heart to want to turn away from other lovers. You're, in fact, you are going to start charting different paths. You're going to blaze new trails of holiness and love for God and love for neighbor. And as you do, you know what's going to happen to those old paths? They're going to start to grow over. They're going to start to grow over. And there's a very real sense in which it's like, I feel like I've been there before. Hmm. Like it, you start to forget your old lovers. I am watching this 
in people's lives in our church all the time. And this is awesome. I've seen this, God doing this in my own life, where I'm forgetting the idols of old. They just don't have the pull, pull they used to have. Doesn't mean we're not still tempted. Doesn't mean we still don't cave the temptation. But it means these things do not have the same power they used to have on our lives. Is that true of you? Praise the Lord because you are a recipient of the new covenant. This is a gift of God's grace in your heart that you want to stay home, that you want to know God. And I love this. It says, and I will make for them a new covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things on the ground. Then it says, I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Notice that, lay down in safety. I almost want to say, make you lie down in green pastures because we're meant to get that idea. Like he's going to shepherd us. And you know what's happening here? This covenant, and he's talking about the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. Where do we first meet them? In the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1. Guess what God's saying is going to be a blessing in the new covenant? You're going to be in a new garden, a better garden. You're back in Eden, as it were. Like God is restoring glory. When we walk through that door of hope, worlds are opening up. And this is why in like first Peter, second Peter chapter three, Peter says that we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus Christ comes back again. Because he wasn't making it up. He was expecting a day where this redemption that comes through Jesus Christ would touch heaven and earth. It would encompass everything. There's going to be a renewed earth that we will live on someday. And there will be no more war. There'll be no more chaos. There'll be no more brokenness. There'll be nothing to disrupt peace in that place where King Jesus has fully and finally and ultimately established his reign. Amen? This is what we're looking for. Is that what you're looking forward to? And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. It says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness. I will betroth you to me. I'm reading backwards. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. This is an everlasting covenant, brothers and sisters. We'll be wedded to him. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And I love this because this is an echo of Jeremiah chapter 31 describing the new covenant that's going to meet. And it says, all those in the new covenant will be forgiven their sins and all shall know me from the least to the greatest. To be in the new covenant is to know God and to know him as he's meant to be known, to finally acknowledge God the way he was meant to be acknowledged, unlike how Israel was acknowledging God in, his, in their day. This is stunning. This is what's going to be. You're going to know him. And I love that. I think that description is primarily in this context, describing the text about justice and steadfast love and mercy. I think it's in faithfulness. I think it's actually describing the character of the people the God-like character that's going to be worked into the people of God's life as a blessing of the new covenant. In other words, we're going to want to stay home. We're going to want to know God and delight in God more and more. We are going to want to sin less and less. We are going to see God more and more and more clearly. We used to forget God more and more and more. Now we want to remember God more and more and more this is sanctification. This is what God is doing in our lives even right now. In that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, verse 21, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land, ultimately pointing forward to this ultimate land that we're going to be planted in, that's going to be permanent and I love that. This will answer to this, this will answer to that. Like there is this sweet harmony that comes when people come to know Jesus Christ. We know it to our hearts because this chaos becomes more orderly, but ultimately we're going to know it in the life to come where all is perfectly ordered. And there's this perfect symmetry and harmony being sung by all of God's creation. Again, we are back in Eden. That's what we're longing for. We read about the first Eden in the first chapters of the Bible. We read about the fall. We get to learn an awful lot about that. Then we learn about Jesus Christ and what he's done to knock that door of hope off its hinges so that we can walk through it. And once we walk through that door, the world gets a lot bigger to us all the time. And that's what's being described here in ways that we can try to get our minds around the best we can. 
And it closes, really in a lot of ways, where we ended the sermon last week. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say not my, to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you, you are my God. That's like earth saying earlier, you are my husband. In other words, by the grace of God and his transforming work, for him to bring us to that place of repentance and open that door of hope and grant us the gift of faith to believe in Jesus, we claim God as our own. I don't know about you, but I read that and I just go, this is a miracle. To want God, to appoint that head to lead us in this life is a miracle in a fallen world. And we get to celebrate that miracle. And this text is designed to help us celebrate that miracle and to celebrate a God who responds in ways that exceed our logic. Let's pray. Lord, we draw near to you and we do rejoice. We rejoice in this word, Lord, because we see so much of ourselves in Israel's waywardness. We rejoice not because we see ourselves in that, but because of the door of hope that you have opened through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we acknowledge that you want to bring us to places where we see ourselves for who we are and to see what we deserve, but that you don't leave us there. You bring us into the wilderness and you speak tenderly to us, not to leave us broken and scarred and confused, but to bring us but to bring us through that door of hope and ultimately into eternal life with you. But between now and then, Lord, we know we live in this wilderness place. We live in this, this land in between. We live in this place of sanctification. And we pray, oh God, and I pray for your people now, that we would more and more forsake our idols. That we would so grow in seeing your beauty and your love and your generosity toward us in Christ that it would make that it would expose the lies that we're believing. God, I pray that you give grace to your people today to forsake their idols. That we would turn from these things, freshly leave them at the foot of the cross. Lord, that it would be in our hearts to set up walls cuz we don't want to go there anymore. Lord, help us to be freshly reminded that those lovers do not satisfy There's only one that does. God, give us hearts to return to our first love. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for stripping us bare so that we would see our own lewdness and see our great need for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to rejoice in that hope. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that has not entered into that door by faith yet. Oh God, would you compel them? Would you woo them? Would you, by your spirit, bring them through that door that they might taste and see just how good you are? God, have mercy on all of us and help us to rejoice in this great grace. In Jesus' name.